the way that I like to talk about this with mothers is if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for your children. Okay, fine. Let's use that as the gateway. I'm cool with you using that as the gateway drug, right? Whatever gets you there. So let's think about it like this. What are you teaching your children? I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. We have two awesome guests joining our show today, Vanessa Bennett and Danae Logan. They are therapists who really do a deep dive into the psychology of the soul. So they use this on their Instagram account. They have their own podcast, Cheaper Than Therapy. And their whole point is to really demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I just to tell you, this was one of my favorite episodes I've ever had on Herself Podcast. I can say that after three years, it was just so truthful. Um, it hit so many different points. They gave very specific instances of how our childhood or how our current partnerships can kind of dictate how we feel, how we go about life. But then they help arm us with solutions. So really having both of those parts of it, I was kind of on eggshells and had like my heart beating kind of faster in certain parts of it. And I just feel like I got so much out of their wisdom. And I just want to add, I do think that this is the type of episode that is going to push you guys because Abby and I are very open to this therapy work, but it also pushed us. Like you just learn about why you might be the way you are, why it's so important to have a sense of yourself for your whole life. And what I mean is not just being a partner and a mom, but also a person and why that's so, so important to invest in yourself. So without further ado, we hope that you guys love this episode. One piece of relationships that you guys have committed so much of your work to is codependency. So I would love it if you guys explained codependency and what are some signs that people might be falling into that dynamic and when does that dynamic become an issue? Um, well, so yeah, I, after the last kind of few years of really diving into this work and kind of making it almost like my life's mission, I feel like it found me. Um, I, I've really come to understand codependency as a very simple one-liner, right? So the way that I describe it is this. If you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good, right? So my emotional state is based on somebody else's emotional state. My sense of goodness, my sense of being okay, my sense of value, self-worth, all of these things are based outside of myself. They're based on somebody else, right? And so to answer the question of how do you know you're in a dynamic uh, that's codependent, I mean, Danae and I would both say that you are, <laughs> mostly because we are very big proponents of, I guess, trying to take the stigma out of the word codependency in and of itself by just mm. normalizing the fact that we live in a codependent society. It is the air we breathe. It's all the movies we watch. It's all the stories we read. Um, and every one of our interpersonal relationships, not just romantic, to some degree is codependent. Um, it is, it's very, very common, at least in this society. 
Yeah. And it's tough because Vanessa and I talk a lot about how our earliest survival mechanisms are based on our ability to create healthy attachments, right? So, oh my gosh, all the relational models, whether it's Imago therapy or the Gottman's work or um, Gabor Mate talks a lot about how when we are born, we know that for survival, we need to attach to our caretakers, right? And so there's these two fundamental human needs that we have. We need attachment, but we also need authenticity. But attachment will always trump authenticity until we get to a space where we learn how to develop a healthy sense of self. But most of our societal programming, as Vanessa speaking to, doesn't teach us sort of how to transition from that space of learning to create healthy attachments to um, having an authentic sense of self. And so where we sort of get stuck is in that space of, I need to attach to this person at all costs. That is where I get my safety. That is where I get my sense of self. And what ends up happening is we don't really fully develop a sense of self. We just sort of cultivate attachments that actually aren't super healthy. They're us regulating our internal world, as Vanessa said, our nervous system through my ability to maintain this attachment. So I love to say, I don't think most of us actually have what is authentic love. We have attachments to other people. Um, and so it's it's tough because so much of the way that we are raised from the beginning is just to like maintain those attachments at all costs. It's so interesting because that codependency answer was already news to me because I do think of it as that negative connotation. I feel like that's how it's mostly used on Instagram and otherwise. So I understand that there is codependence in relationships, in partnerships, in friendships. When is it starting to tip into like, this is an unhealthy codependency? Yeah. I mean, Right. So if we start with a base level of we all have a certain amount of codependence, right? And then we move into, well, what's healthy and what's not? I mean, Danae and I would say we should push ourselves in all arenas to move away from codependency and relationships, period. But really, it's about, like I said in the beginning, you know, if my sense of self, which Danae is saying most of us have this, is based outside of myself, if I feel like I'm not okay, if this person is not okay, if I feel like I'm not going to be okay, if I'm not with this person or attached to this person, or I'm not in relationship to this person, right? When I start to find myself controlling or manipulating scenarios, conversations, not rocking the boat, et cetera, in order to maintain some sort of status quo, which really is just about maintaining the attachment, right? All of these um, kind of unhealthy relational coping mechanisms that we develop in order to, like Denise said, keep that attachment. When you start finding yourself doing all of those, number one, unconsciously, I mean, it's completely the tail wagging the dog, Right. But when you have yourself in a situation where you are so unconsciously acting in your relationships that you don't even know where do you end, where do they begin? Are you okay on your own? Can you be okay on your own? All of these kind of questions, I think, are ones that we would ask clients. And I'll tell you, the vast majority of people, when they really get down to it, they can't answer those questions or they answer those questions pretty clear, like, no, I'm not okay if they leave or if this attachment ends. Right. And I think that's when you start to say, okay, well, we've got some work to do here then. Yeah. And I think so much of this is mindfulness work and why Vanessa and I are such huge proponents of mindfulness work, because so many people, when they first come in and start doing some therapy or some processing, they don't have a sense of what Vanessa is speaking to. Um, how do I know if I'm okay or not? Um, we're just so like reactionary in our 
attempt to maintain those attachments and attempt to maintain those relationships. And so it becomes, how do I come into my body and really check in when this person leaves, when this person is angry with me, what happens for me? How do I know? Where do I feel that in my body? What is the story I start telling myself about what will happen if I don't fix it, if I don't make it better, right? And instead of doing that thing that I've always done, reacting from the space that I've always sort of reacted, what if I didn't? What if I paused and learned to stay with myself notice what's happening in my body, starting to do some of the the somatic work of like being in my breath and and self-regulating in other ways, other than reaching always for that other person, then we start to teach ourselves, no, I actually am okay. Um, what needs to be solved, I love to say to clients, doesn't need to be solved in this moment. Sometimes it's just about slowing down our internal process a little bit so that we can be in right relationship with ourselves first and then start to like check in with that other person about what's happening between us. Yeah. And to kind of bring it into like the personal realm, which I think today and I love to do because I think it's really important that people hear therapists being human, but also I think it's easier to connect when you realize like, oh, these are real life struggles that they deal with too. And you can see yourself in it. I was literally just having a conversation last night with my partner about some of these dynamics because I have been so immersed in the healing work around this stuff for the last few years. And you know, it's, it's the mindfulness of both the positive and the negative. So what I was telling him last night is I've been in this space of paying attention to when he shows up in certain ways, what is my internal response, right? So if he walks in the door and he's off, he's a little out of sorts, right? Like I can tell his energy is different. I can tell he's maybe in a bad mood. I can tell my instinct. I can feel it in my body. I get uncomfortable. I want to ask him what's wrong. I think it's me. What's, are we in a fight? Did I do something wrong? Right. And so I was telling him last night that my initial response has always been to what's wrong. Are you okay? Is everything okay? Right. And I'm actually biting my tongue in those Mm -hmm. moments that I want to do that. And instead in my head going, I don't need to ask him if he needs to come to me and have a conversation. He can come to me and have a conversation. He's allowed to be upset. He's allowed to be in a bad mood. It can be about me or not about me. It's really none of my business until he makes it my business. Right. And why do I think it's my job to make sure he's happy and content all the time? Right. And why do I automatically assume it's about me? And so we were just having this conversation last night about how that's one of the things that I've been really paying attention to. Um, and listen, it's caused a little bit of struggle because I think he's so used to me being like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Everything okay? What can I do to fix it? And now I'm not doing that. And he's going, well, you usually come to me, you know, in so many words. And I'm like, well, dude, like that's on you now. Now you have to do the work of sitting with it and saying, oh, is something wrong? Maybe I should talk to her. Right. So once you start kind of changing these dynamics to this mindfulness work, like Danae is saying, you are going to see shifts in your relationships because you're kind of, you're disrupting what's always Mm. been normal. Right. And that's hard for both people. Yeah. I think, I just kind of wanted to jump in on that because I think one of the most profound things a therapist said to me in couples therapy was that my husband could have a negative response to something and I don't have to fix that for him. And that in the moment was like, like it, it feels like it shouldn't be that big of a thing, but it was. And I think something I've come to understand is that when we really struggle to sit with our own pain, our own grief, our own discomfort, we really don't know how to allow other people to have that same experience. And so if we haven't learned to see the value in my pain and my discomfort and my grief, whatever emotions are coming to the surface for me, we will experience that as like, 
something we got to shut down. Fix, That's fix, bad. Fix, fix, fix. We're not supposed to feel anything. <laughs> and we very much grow up in a culture that teaches us only happy. Like if you're not happy, do something quick to make that go away. Shut Buy it down. Suppress pretty. it. <laughs> right. And so we don't really learn the tools to sit with the vast array of emotions that we are meant as human animals to sit with. Mm-hmm. And so we think if, as Vanessa speaking to you, if my partner comes in and, you know, those of us and women, especially who can be really empathic and can feel into what that person is feeling, it's like, ooh, they're uncomfortable. I need to make that go away. Discomfort's bad, right? Where a lot of times my partner may actually get a lot of value around whatever they're processing, whatever they're feeling. And I'm robbing them of that experience when I rush in there and fix it for them. Yeah. Uh, The first 10 minutes of this interview have already been so good because you're talking directly to our audience. We have mothers, I mean, mostly mothers, women who are empaths, who want to support, who want to fix things, Mm. who want everyone to be able to keep the peace. And I think that you met them first of all with a little bit of resistance. Like, wait a minute. No, I'm not codependent. And then wait, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I am what do I do now? And then you gave them exact strategies. You gave them the tools that they need to do in order to start fixing it today. So just thank you right away for that answer, because I think that a lot of us are going to be making some changes and it's going to start with that response. But what about interdependence? Because we know that how you speak about interdependence, it just is a little bit different than what others in the personal development space, just how they how they describe it. So first of all, how is your view different? And then how does your perspective help individuals who are in relationships? Yeah. You know, I think when I think about interdependence, it's actually something, the way I formulated it in my head was something I read in a parenting book once when I was teaching my kiddo um, about sleep training, actually, or how to sleep. And that so many of us did not get a lot of tools for self-soothing in childhood, right? And that in this book, the phrase that she used was, I can't fix it but I can go through it with you. And to me, that is interdependence, that um, we are meant to have intimacy. So interdependence is um, intimacy with a state of independence, that we are both two independent sovereign beings in relationship. Vanessa and I come from a depth psychology background, which is really the understanding that we are not just these bodies. We are not just human beings. We are souls having um, a human experience for a period of time. And if we understand that to be true, that means that each of us as souls have certain experiences, pain points, growing edges that we are meant to experience to become the fullest embodiment of who we are meant to become in this lifetime. And a lot of times the challenging moments, the growing edges, the things that are painful shape us, right? Like that is the alchemy. We are shaped through pain. That's like, we go through those fires and we come out on the other side changed forever. Um, But again, we're a society that has for a really long time, not held space for our ability to do that. So we think we got to like buy something, fix something, take something, make it go away quickly. Um, where a lot of times that is where our character is built. That is where we build resilience in those moments of challenge and what we overcome. And so it's really holding the sovereignty of the person that I claim to love with a different level of reverence for me. Interdependence is I'm here with you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be in intimacy with you. I'm here for whatever you are open and desiring to share with me, but I'm not going to fix your struggles for you because I am robbing you of some of the experiences you are meant to have in this lifetime when I just quickly make everything better. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think too, a lot of the ways that Danae and I talk about the kind of opposite of interdependence is really this idea of like 
Danae calls it the ownership template, right? Like we, we look at relationships as if we are owners, like I own you now. So like you are responsible to meet my needs. You are responsible for making sure I'm comfortable all the time. You are responsible for, you are responsible for, you are responsible for, right? I am owed this from you. Again, another conversation I've been really deep in right now with my partner. It's like, I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me anything. That's not love. That's not interdependence. That is ownership. That is codependence. We are two people, to Danae's point, two sovereign beings who have chosen to be in relationship with each other, to support each other, but not be lost in each other. I don't own you. You don't own me, right? And so when we think about that, even this idea of needs, right? I mean, it's such a hot topic right now. Everybody's talking about their needs all over social media. And it's like, we've, we look at our partners as if they are just these like needs meeting machines. Like somehow it's their responsibility to essentially reparent us, which is a whole other conversation that Danae and I get like all icky feeling around because so many of these kind of big relationship gurus that we all look to for advice are kind of telling us that it's our partner's job or our friend's job to reparent us. And it's not, it's ours. Yeah. I think this is a lot of why, you know, Vanessa and I work a lot with couples and what I have come to see in couples work is that a lot of the reason people think couples therapy isn't effective and doesn't work is because for the most part, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because what ends up happening is a lot of the patriarchal systems that we've all grown up in are just reinforced in, um, in the way that we hold couples work, in the way that we are taught that we are meant to partner. And we are not, again, just these bodies, our souls know that they are meant for expansion and freedom and to grow and to change and evolve. And if we don't hold space for that within our partnerships, some part of us knows something's off, right? And what ends up happening to the point that Vanessa is making, I see is that we're doing a whole lot of parenting one another. And that's great for security and safety in a relationship. I know this person's here. I know they're not going anywhere. I believe they're not going anywhere, but I don't have a lot of life force in that. I don't have a lot of eros. I don't have a lot of longing, erotic attraction, all of these things that we need both. We need safety, but we also need aliveness in our relationships. And if we don't have both, that's not sustainable. And then we start to get into all of the inevitable acting out that happens when we push feelings down below the surface. Eventually they come up and they do in some maladaptive ways, some unhealthy ways. If we don't really address like, no, these are human things we're going to need to fill and feel. Um, but a patriarchal system has taught us that we shouldn't feel a lot of what are the natural elements of our humanity. I'll put my New Yorker spin on it really quickly and just say, I can mother you or I can want to F you. (laughs) I don't know if if y'all swear on this, but I can't do both. Right. Or I can look at you. We're talking, you know, heteronormative here. I can look at you as my paternal figure, Mm -hmm. or you can want to have sex with me. Right. But you can't do both. Yeah. It's really interesting because you're saying it more bluntly than our community is saying it when they're saying it, mm. but they're saying the same all thing. About the they're like, <laughs> I don't want to have another child. Yes. Like, I feel like I am mothering you instead yep. of feeling like we are in partnership. And I also think it's really interesting because the next question we're going to start to talk a little bit about motherhood is this idea that I feel like our generation has really gotten into this place where we're trying to solve all of our kids' problems. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the goal either, but it's hard for people to hear that, something that we've been exploring on the podcast. So one thing that Abby and I are really passionate about is that women really need to maintain a sense of themselves outside of motherhood Mm -hmm. and outside 
outside of their partnership. And there is a benefit to doing that to the kids, to the partner, and most importantly, to the self. So mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to talk about this idea because right now you're speaking to women that are very, very busy and they, most of them have multiple kids and they already feel overwhelmed. So this idea that they need to carve out some time to be an individual can be tough for them to swallow. I also wanted to say that they have an easier time carving out time for the couple. So they're more willing to like go on a date with their partner than they are to go out with their friend. Yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about why you guys think that it's important to have this sense of self outside of these big two roles as a mother and as a partner. Speaking our language. We're going to put that one on patriarchy as well. Yep. Um, yeah, I think everything that we have been trained to believe is that we should be at the bottom of the, our to-do list, right? And um, and that is often why, and I think both of you are speaking to why so many women that I sit with that are mothers and um, are in partnerships feel like my relationship is another task, another thing that I need to do. It's on my to-do list, right? And so it doesn't feel life affirming and filling and, you know, I'm a little bit obsessed with studying masculine and feminine energetics. And so if we think about this from us as women who are core feminines and not every woman is, but women who are like a core feminine energetic, the feminine needs play and freedom and liberation and um, really space to... Fluidity to tap into her intuition and her knowing and everything about our society and the modern feminist movement as grateful as we all are for what feminist feminism has offered us really taught us to even further disconnect from our core feminine essence and essentially behave like wounded masculine men, right? So I can do everything a man can do. I can keep adding to my to-do list. So in addition, and you know, that, that film and documentary fair play got so much attention because it was speaking to these underlying dynamics that women have been experiencing for so long in a patriarchal culture that tells us not only should we be able to, you know, continuously do forever, but we should be able to do everything um, that our partners, if, you know, we're speaking heteronormatively are doing, but we should then at the end of the day, come home and then start mothering. And in addition to that, a little bit be mothering our partners because they are also another thing, another person that needs from us. And so, I think the reclaiming of ourselves as women is a little bit around the space of in 2023, all of these things can't be on my to-do list and not evenly distributed. We are both in this, we are both a partnership and I do need that space to be the fullest embodiment of my feminine self. And so much of this is that a patriarchal culture teaches us to devalue everything that is feminine, right? Um, you throw like a girl, don't be a girl, right? Like don't cry about it. Don't whine about it. Don't be in your emotions. So much of what patriarchy teaches us that is that everything that is feminine does not have value, should be held with contempt. And so many of us as women not only have been conditioned to hold our own feminine essence with contempt, but really um, to wear really wounded masculine armor. And it just makes it really difficult for us to be in the space of lightness and play and flowing with things and all of these things that we are so hungry to return to. Um, but but it's just so deeply ingrained in us to feel like we don't have the ability to do that or even know where to begin. 
A quick break from one of our favorite sponsors, Viore. Viore is just dropping their spring staples and everything is beautiful. I'm in love with the color palette, the Palo Santo and Stormy pieces are just, you guys are going to love them. I love every single piece I have from Viore, as I always tell you guys. Today, we did want to call out that their men's stuff is so awesome. We've heard so many good things about the core short. So if you are looking to upgrade your man's wardrobe, going with the core short for this spring and summer is the perfect piece. Once you have the core short, you just don't go back. So shop the core short for a guy in your life, shop the spring collection for yourself. You can go to Viore Clothing, that's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com backslash herself, and that will get you 20% off. So again, that's Viore Clothing.com backslash herself for 20% off. And now back to our show. Yeah. And I want to throw the the parenting part into that too. And I, I speak a lot with clients around, especially people who are kind of like new to this journey and they're like, okay, it's not working. I've hit this wall. I've got to make changes, but I kind of don't know where to start. Right. Or to your point, um, you know, uh, I feel like how, how, I'd rather go out with my partner than, than go out with my friends, or I just don't, I'm going to put myself on the to-do list. Right. And I'm always somehow at the bottom. And so the way that I like to talk about this with mothers is if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for your children. Okay, fine. Let's use that as the gateway. I'm cool with you using that as the gateway drug, right? Whatever gets you there. So let's think about it like this. What are you teaching your children? Especially your daughters. You are teaching them that it is your job to be a servant, to not have joy, to not respect your boundaries, to not have a voice, right? You are teaching them that they are not a priority, that they should not prioritize themselves, that martyrdom is the only way to gain love, right? That the only way to be safe is to be partnered, even if that means you're miserable, right? If we want to start there, I think that's a really good wake-up call sometimes for people to go, oh my God, this is actually what I'm teaching my kids. Because here's what we will tell you as therapists, Children do not learn by what they hear. They learn by what they see, period, hard stop. I don't care if you're telling your daughter until you're blue in the face, women are powerful, women can do whatever they want, women this, it doesn't matter because if they're watching you devalue yourself and they're watching you be overburdened and they're watching you be resentful all the time and all of these things that so many of us live in, that's what they learn, right? And that's what they will become promise that. So I do think it's important, again, to be kind of blunt about this. If you don't want to get there for yourself, if you don't want to start doing this hard work for yourself, fine, do it for your kids first. And then what happens is then you'll start to want to do it for yourself because then once you experience that joy and you start experiencing that change and that shift internally, like Danae was saying, reclaiming some of this feminine essence and all of the joy and beauty that comes with that, you'll start to maybe start you know, doing it for yourself too. Yeah. And I just want to add, because I think often when we, especially as women are talking about how we heal some of these patriarchal narratives, men are deeply harmed by patriarchy as well. 
And, you know, even in, in the example you were just giving so much of what we have come to understand about like where we're struggling with our husbands or our partners, um, and what they're not doing and what they take for granted that we're doing. Same thing. What was modeled by their mothers? Mm-hmm. Martyrdom. I should be able to keep going and doing and your father should just like sit on the couch and watch football. But that is much, just as much what we are modeling for our sons. And that matters too. And so if I want to ha- raise a son that feels like, yes, everybody's valuable here. Humans are valuable. Their time is valuable. Then I got to model that for my kid so that at some point when he's in a relationship, that's what he grew up seeing. Not that like mom's time was less important or that mom um, shouldn't take time for her self-care because so much of what we have sort of come to understand is like patriarchy equals like men and toxic masculinity. And men are just as harmed by these limiting beliefs about who we get to be in the fullness of our humanity. Totally. Yeah, and both Amy and I, we have six going on seven-year-olds. Amy has a son, I have a daughter, and then Amy has two other boys, and I have two other boys. But when you say it like that, it, it fires us up. Like it, mm-hmm. it fires me up to be like, what can we change? Those small things we can do around the house day in and day out. It's not just this big thing that one-time event. It's day in and day out that we can do to start changing this next generation. And it does start with us. Mm-hmm. And it can be the gateway, like you said. Like We always want it to be about you, the woman at the end of it. But can we start with having it be about the kids? Yeah, if that's what's going to help. If that's it's the fire, help. right? Yep. Sometimes that's the fire that we need. And also too, it can be like, you know, I just went away with my, with my mom for a trip and I went away for eight days and that was the longest I've ever been away. And I'll tell you, that's hard. Did my kid get her hair brushed every day? Probably not. She might not have had her teeth brushed every day. It's, it's possible, you know, mm. she was fine. She was alive. She cried. She was upset, but you know what? It's really important that mommy go away. It's really important that mommy have fun. It's really important that mommy has these relationships, whether it's with my mother or my friends or whoever. Um, this is important to mommy, right? And I tell her that I don't lie to her when I, when I'm going, I'm going to the gym. I want you to stay with me. It's important that mommy love her body. It's important that mommy do this for herself and she can cry. She can be upset about that. That's okay. Right. To go back to what Danae was saying earlier about robbing. So yeah, I'm glad that you said that because it, it, this, this thing about making it about the kids is sometimes the fire that gets Mm -hmm. us into it, you know? Yeah. And I love what you just said, Vanessa, in terms of, I think it's really important that we model for our children, not this martyrdom idea that like, I do all of this for you and I hate my life. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, if we think back to the way that most of us felt as children, what we wanted was for mom to be happy. Right. And I, you know, as the example you were just giving Vanessa, a lot of times my son will say things to me like, Oh, do you have to go to work? And I say, buddy, no, mommy gets to go to work. I love what I do. My work makes me so excited and happy. Um, just like I love being with you. I love the work that I get to do. I think it's, it's really not the service to our children that we believe it is to sort of suggest that somehow life is something that you are meant to get and suffer through. Um, so I think we need to model that as well, that life is something that we all get to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. These make a really big impact in the long run. Mm. So um, let's switch gears a little bit because we hear from our community a lot. And I mean, if we're being honest, we ourselves sometimes want our partners to change. Like we wish that they could make these small changes or sometimes big changes, but we're wondering your point of view on this. So should we wait for them to change? Should we Mm -hmm. try to change them? Should we just accept them for who they are? Even if some days they're bringing us down or they're making our days super hard or less tolerable, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. 
Yeah. You know, I, I often quote something I heard Meryl Streep say once that I loved so much. And she said, you know, someone asked her how she'd been married successfully, whatever that means for so many years of her life with her partner. And she said, you know what I realized whenever I was really unhappy with my husband, when I dug a little deeper, I wasn't really happy with where I was. I really wasn't doing things that filled me up and made me feel like myself. And I have found in my own life and certainly in my experience working with people that quite often what we do when we want to control or fix or change something in someone else is offer ourselves a distraction from the things that we're not really wanting to look at within ourselves. And so a couple things. First of all, I think what I end up hearing um, and have experienced myself um is that a lot of times there are things that we feel like we need to change or control in another person that didn't just sort of appear overnight, right? It's like, I've been in this relationship with this person and the things that, you know, I sort of like swept under the rug or they were what they were when we first met, but I really wanted to seal the deal and, you know, get this this relationship um, solidified. Now, all of a sudden, I cannot tolerate these things and I need this person to change right now so that I can be okay. Now, not only is that codependent, that's that space of like, I'm okay if you're who I need you to be. But also I think there's, if we bring it back to a soul level, a little bit of an inquiry for each of us to do around, is that a change this person wants to make? Like real talk. Um, And if not, is that my right? Is that my job? That's back to that ownership template to demand change within another person that they're not interested in. You know, I heard Jay Shetty say something the other day that was so profound to me. He was talking about seeing something in your partner and just like not feeling inspired by it and feeling really sort of like, I don't love that this is the way this person is showing up. What most of us have been conditioned to do is feel like it's our right to demand that that person change because they're my partner. I own them quote, right? Mm -hmm. If instead we met with curiosity, tell me about what's happening for you. Tell me about how you're feeling about what's going on with you. Is this who you want to be? Because each of us, if we believe that we are autonomous beings, have the right to decide for ourselves how we want to show up for this life. Now, and this is another one of my favorite quotes that Ayanna Van Zandt, I don't know if you guys know her, but she's like one of Oprah's people. Um, She often says, I don't get to teach you how to love me. I just get to decide if I want to participate in the way that you love. And so many of us feel like when I'm in relationship with another person, I get to change them. I get to mold them into the person that is someone I will find lovable. I would argue that's actually not loving that person. That's more about my stuff, you know? Yeah. And I, I, you know, one of the pithy quotes that Danae uses often that I love is, is really simple, which is love them for who they are or leave them the hell alone. Essentially, it is. I think we really are being, and this is where I think we are shifting collectively, is really examining um, where we take personal responsibility for how we want to show up for this life. And a lot of times it just becomes easier to make the other person the problem. And when Vanessa and I talk about shadow work, which is another depth psychology thing we love to say, whenever I'm pointing one finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at me. But those aren't really my focus. I'm just really wanting to focus on that one finger. And there's all always something below the surface that I have an invitation to look at when I'm activated by someone else's behavior. Mm, Really interesting. One thing that my therapist said to me when we were unpacking some of the common cycles that we were getting in inside of our relationship was that it's 
it's smart to think of things as preferences. Mm -hmm. So my husband's preference is that all the cabinets are shut, that everything is just a certain way. He has that, he's more, you know, that the type A, you could say, personality. And, and then what can happen, and Abby's kind of that way too, is like they can really impose their preferences onto people that don't have that same preference of tidiness. So I thought it was really interesting because like I was feeling bad that I couldn't keep things exactly to his order. And then when I reflected, I was like, this is how I've literally always been my whole life. Like I just don't have that same need. But I know for our community, this gets really hard because we do have some people that are trying to control inside of that relationship and really wanting their partner to change and the ability to control their partner. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of been talking about this, but where does that line get blurry when we talk about controlling people and if that's even positive or beneficial to the relationship? Oh my gosh, Amy, I'm, can I just real quick tell the cabinet story of you? Don't forget what you're going to say because you just reminded me of a story that I have to share. That's so funny because early in my marriage, um, my ex-husband and I went to couples therapy, right? And so he used to get so annoyed by that precise thing that you're talking about that I would leave cabinet doors open and he'd constantly <laughs> be like, today, can you please just close the cabinet doors? And I'd be like, oh yeah, sorry. You know, like I didn't think that much about it. And when he brought this up in couples therapy, he's like, I know it's a small thing, but it literally drives me crazy. It's like, she's doing it just to make me nuts. I don't understand why it's such a big deal to close the cabinets. And the therapist said, what you resist persists. Stop closing the cabinet doors. If it's that, you know, like you didn't open it, just stop closing the cabinet doors. She's not going to do it as long as you're like demanding that she close the cabinet doors. And he tried it as an experiment. And all of a sudden, one day I looked up and there were all these cabinet doors open. And I was like, oh, that's what he's been talking about. The cabinet doors are open. And it completely shifted it. And I started closing the cabinet doors. But as long as he was parenting me and demanding that I close the cabinet doors, my inner teenager was in resistance, was just like, you're not going to control me. And this is like the psychology of the human animal thing. When we are feeling like we are being controlled by another person, our psyche will inevitably be in resistance. It's just what we do. And so if we can understand, it is my work to understand why this bothers me so much why I have such a strong need to shut this down and control this other person. If I can bring the focus back inward, a lot of times the dynamic will shift, but it's not going to shift. I have yet to meet a person who's changed anything in their life because someone nagged them into submission. It's just not how we create lasting change. Sorry, I interrupted you, B. No, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's, it's a lot of this. I think the control too, it's funny because we do always find ourselves in these uh, friendship partnerships that somehow mirror a lot of our romantic partnerships, right? Because Danae and I are very similar. Like I'm the type A, you know, and, and we might say there's like the under-functioning, over-functioning dynamic, which Mm -hmm. is at play in a lot of relationships, right? Both friendships and romantic partnerships. And what I have learned is really to practice compassion on both sides. Okay. So if we look at the over-functioners, I'm going to generalize here, but many over-functioners were parentified children. Many over-functioners were the ones that kind of had to keep their shit together, were kind of hypervigilant. You know, maybe they were the eldest. They had a lot of responsibility. They were the perfectionist child. They got a lot of praise for being good and great and performing, right? And so they started to develop their self-worth 
based on that, right? Things have to look a certain way for everything to be okay. Like there's a lot of personality traits that are attached to what we experience as children. And when we pull out like that, there's, I can have a lot of compassion, even if it feels like somebody's being hyper controlling. Now that doesn't mean that I'm not like annoyed and I'm not doing what Danae is saying, which is like, stop controlling me. Right. But I can hold that person with more compassion and the same goes the other way. So something that was really eye-opening to me that I learned in my friendship with Danae, and I'm in a partnership with somebody that I would say usually falls on that under-functioning spectrum to use that term. When she said that under-functioners for the most part, deep down, have a belief that they actually can't. They don't have the ability. They can't do it. Um, you know, they, they don't have that faith in themselves. They don't have that trust in themselves. Um, and a lot of times some of these under functioning, um, traits or behaviors show up from a place of, I need other people to take care of me. I don't have me. I, I, I never was taught that, right? I didn't grow up that way. That really, again, turned me into a place of compassion for my partner when I realized that so many of those behaviors come from this core belief that you might not see on the surface. It's very unconscious. Um, but I think sometimes if we can look at each other in the compassionate space of like, where did that come from? What was that childhood experience that kind of brought that to the surface? It can be really helpful and then untangling the actual behaviors that come from it or come with it. I think from a depth psychology perspective, this is so often why we are like, if we sort of continue to play out the behavior patterns that we feel compelled to do, what we miss is the opportunity for healing that like there's layers of healing that we can continue to tap into that, you know, to Vanessa's point about the overfunctioner, if this is like, things need to look perfect, I need to control, I need to hold things down or catastrophe. If I don't ever teach myself that nothing's actually, the world is not going to end if the cabinet doors are open. Like, yes, it may look aesthetically less than pleasing, but we're okay. We're still breathing. Um, then I don't teach myself to, again, self-regulate, to be in my body through the discomfort that comes to the surface. If I just am in conflict, conflict and I shut it down with the other person. And again, to what Vanessa is saying about the underfunctioner. If someone is always doing these things for me, I'm not ever getting the messaging um, that I didn't get as a child because normally the underfunctioner is someone who everyone has always done everything for them. And you think that's loving, but what you're teaching that person is, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in your ability to do this. So I'm going to do it for you. And that's what's internalized by that child and then eventually continues into adulthood. And so if I say I'm not actually going to do this person, this for this person because I love them so much, what that person has the opportunity to do is show themselves what they're capable of. So it's all of our relationships become catalysts for healing if we are willing to do the uncomfortable thing. Well, that was a really interesting journey for me to go on with you guys because I completely agree that when I understand where Drew is coming from and why he might have a reaction to the cabinets opening, like I do have more empathy. For me, I think it's hard when the overfunctioner associates like a sock left next to the bin as like disrespectful or like, <laughs> you know, girl, it's like, it's like a, it's like a slight against them. Yeah. For me, I did not get stuff done for me my whole life. Like my parents weren't really like that. For me, I'm like, I literally don't see the cabinet. Like I am not trying to be same girl, disrespectful. Same. I am not doing, I'm not trying yeah. to make you mad. I literally just 
I'm not as perceptive of those things. So I think it gets hard if people are in a dynamic where they have the narrative of like, this person is lazy and this person is disrespectful when they miss those little things. And if you can kind of try to shift away from that, because I think that a lot of the time it, that's not the truth. I hope that's not the truth that people are trying to, you know, make you mad with the cabinet being a crack open. Well, but let me, I want to jump on that a little bit because, and this is again, as the, as the overfunctioning yeah, yeah. <laughs> relationships, right? Um, I think the kind of cold water in the face for me was when I really sat with this question of, if I think this person is the kind of person that's disrespectful and does these things to me, does them to me, why am I with them? Do I really believe that about the partner that I've chosen? Do I really? And here's the thing. If my answer is yes, then I have to hold myself accountable for being in partnership with somebody that I think is the kind of person that would purposely leave things out in order to upset me or disrespect me, right? There's a lot of personal accountability that the over-functioner really needs to take around this like righteousness that we have. Now, listen, a lot of that comes from childhood. A lot of that comes from like, right? Like what we didn't get from our caretakers, right? And so a lot of us tend to be acts of service people, for example, because that's how we like to feel loved. But again, I got to look again, pointing back at myself, right? Like, so why am I with this person? And when I ask myself that question, and I still ask myself that regularly whenever I get activated, almost always that kind of logical voice in my head goes, no, you don't believe that about him. No, you do not believe that he is the kind of person that is purposely doing X, Y, and Z in order to upset you and disrespect you. Okay. This is the story you're telling yourself, right? What else might be true? This is kind of that like inner dialogue that, that reparenting work really that Danae and I always talk about in that moment of I'm pissed off and righteous about you leaving the cabinet open. If I can pause before I react to that person, and I can ask myself those questions, I'm actually giving myself an opportunity to really rewire and really change some of those like initial kind of gut reactions that come up. So I'm glad you use that as an example, because I think that's really important for people to hear. And now a break from our sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're at your best, you can do great things, but sometimes we get it. Life gets bogged down and you might feel overwhelmed. You might feel frustrated. You might feel like you're not showing up in the best way that you want to. This is when working with a therapist can help you get closer to that best version of you or what I like to think of as that truest version of yourself, the person you feel in alignment with, the person who you aspire to be, the person who at your core you are proud to say you are. Because when you feel empowered, you're more prepared to take on everything life throws at you. And being empowered is something that every woman listening deserves to feel. So if you've been thinking about therapy, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, it's affordable, it's flexible, and it's also entirely online. So all you have to do to get started is fill out a very brief questionnaire, and you're going to get matched with a licensed therapist within just a few days. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy and BetterHelp can get you there. Go to betterhelp.com slash herself. And as a podcast listener, you get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash herself. Now back to our show. 
you know, what you brought to the surface is what we would call in like a more clinical psychology, the narcissistic injury, which is everything is being done to me. And that becomes, you know, like, I think children are such a beautiful example of how we offer the most generous interpretation of this child is not, not thinking about me, right? Like my kid leaves socks all over the floor. I'm not like, oh, he hates me. Just like I am well aware that his brain is thinking about 55,000 things other than how I am going to feel. But we don't offer that same generous interpretation to our partners. And to Vanessa's point, that is our own reparenting work. That is like, what feels historic about this? When did I not feel seen? When did I feel like I longed for someone to care for me in a way that I'm not feeling cared for in this moment? And it's not to sort of say there isn't a way to be in relationship with our partner about, as you said, a desire that I have that we divide and conquer and take one another into account. But it's the, um, I feel slighted. I feel injured. I feel like you are actively attempting to harm me when 99.9% of the time, that's just not true. I'm in love with these responses right now because I feel like you're speaking directly to me. Like as you're, <laughs> Vanessa, as you're going through that, I'm like, wait a minute. How did you know my childhood? How did you know my love language? Like we just met a couple minutes ago. Uh-huh. So I could literally see your eyes like welling up a little bit because it's, you know, you're just yeah. like, you're being called in in a really kind way. Right. Right. Yeah. Not a personal attack. It's like like a personal empathy for yourself. Perfect way of saying it. A personal empathy of like, this is who I am. This is what I've been going through. This is what, this is why I am how I am. And now let's do something about it. Like let's Mm -hmm. work with this, these traits that have been ingrained in us since childhood and work with it so that we can be in partnership, in true partnership with our friends, with our business partners, with our romantic partners, everything. But we know that one thing that all this leads to is resentment. And this is just a conversation that happens in our community. I mean, every week, every day, if we're being honest, something about resentment comes up. And we've heard you guys talk about the idea that you need to own this resentment. But also, if someone is feeling this resentment building, they may have waited too long. Like it might be something that they should have spoken up about from a long time ago. So how can you coach us? How can you coach our audience to start to speak up in the relationships to not only get their needs met, but also to help avoid this resentment that's happening with their partner. I love resentment, actually. I think, (laughs) I mean, I love feeling it. I don't think any of us do. Um, I work with resentment a lot in my codependency work, um, in my classes that I teach and with my clients and with myself. The reason why I say I love resentment is because for those of us who grew up with really not understanding who we are outside of attachment, not really knowing what our gut, our intuition is saying, what am I feeling? What what do I want? What are my needs? What are my wants? What are my desires? This is actually very common, I think, especially for women. We think we know until somebody says like, well, tell me, like communicate it. And then you're like, I don't know, maybe, sort of, kind of. We all know what resentment feels like. It is a universal feeling that I would say codependents especially know really well. Um, and so the reason why I love it is because it can be such a useful tool to turn inward, right? So I like to say when you're feeling resentment, that's your codependency being activated. Mm. So you get an opportunity to pause and go, ooh, there it is again, right? And it doesn't have to be some massive resentment that's been building up over years. It can be that like first initial kind of like, when you first get that feeling that if you developed the mindful skill around paying attention to that feeling and pausing when you do, you have an opportunity to turn inward and say, okay, 
What am I not communicating? What am I not speaking up about? What am I not being honest about? What am I not? Um, yeah. I mean, I think those are really the big ones. So I love it because for me, if I'm really challenging myself in those moments, instead of getting righteous, instead of getting like, well, this person owes me and da, 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 they should have, could have, would have, whatever. I get to go, no, no, no. What's my hundred percent? What am I not owning? What am I not speaking up about? Because I always like to say resentment is nobody's but yours. Nobody's. Resentment is a hundred percent yours to own because it really does point to something that you're not speaking up about. Now, in saying that, I already know, I already hear the people out there being like, well, what? And right, they don't do this and they don't do that because I've heard it from clients before too. How is it possible for me not to be resentful when I've spoken up about X, Y, and Z a million times and they keep doing it or they keep not doing it? This is what I hear a lot. This goes back to our last, I think, conversation around, okay, but you are actively participating in continuing to show up in a dynamic where you continually feel slighted, where you continually feel like somebody's doing something or not doing something directly to impact you. And so again, bringing it back constantly, what can you own? What can you shift? How can you look inward and kind of take some personal responsibility in, in that resentment? Yeah, I think Vanessa and I talk about personal responsibility more than anything else, because to me, it has been the biggest game changer in my own life. Um, It's the thing that like, yeah, we can sit and talk about what someone else isn't doing until we're blue in the face for the rest of our lives. But if that person doesn't decide to change from a grounded place within themselves, an authentic desire within themselves what are you going to do? And as long as I need someone else to change in order for me to have a sense of peace within myself, that person holds the key to my power. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't like other people having power over me. So I'm not going to sit in the space of what is outside of my control. And in this life, the only person we ever get to be in control of is ourselves, period. That's it. Oh, you guys, I have a story for you. So when I was having a lot of resentment, I'll tell you, I'm just going to say to the listeners, what they're saying is really hard to accomplish. Oh my I God. Think. Are you kidding? Because so hard. <laughs> I loved, like Drew got home from softball, I, vivid memory of me just like throwing dishes around because I was so mad and <laughs> resentful <laughs> and like to turn it inward. My husband was offering me, take time to yourself. Go, why don't you go do something? Go do something. And I wasn't taking the opportunity. So it was on me because I had so much mm-hmm. mom guilt to work through that I couldn't go do something at that time for myself. Yeah. But I want to bring it full circle here because one thing, and so you guys are in this space, we're in this space of trying to help women get on this path. But what we hear is my husband would never do that. My husband doesn't let me, you know, plug in whatever it is. And so we did want to add this question in because we know that a lot of women are feeling really unhappy or defeated in their relationship and their partner is showing no signs that they want to actively help improve things. Where do they go from here? Can you guys give them some advice? I know this is a tough one, but it is, it is what we hear. Yeah. I, you know, I just came from a workshop with a bunch of therapists and, um, One of my teachers, Esther Perel, said something that was so profound. And it's a lot of times what we are doing is offloading the work of what we don't want to do onto that other person. Um, I don't want to make this decision. I don't want to 
I don't want to do the hard thing, whatever the hard thing mm-hmm. is. And I, I think each of us knows what the hard thing is, right? Um, a boundary with our partner, from my perspective, is not about the other person changing. It's about if this dynamic doesn't change, here's what I'm going to do, right? So, you know, we used to talk about codependency in terms of being in a relationship with an alcoholic. As Vanessa spoke to in the beginning, we've really expanded and come to the understanding that like, no, actually all of our relationships are codependent. But a lot of times when people were talking about codependency in the relationship with an alcoholic, it was like the attempt to control their behavior when what we were sort of avoiding doing was, I got to leave this. I got to stop doing this thing that isn't working. And again, you know, Amy, to the example that you're giving, if this person, this partner that I have is really not caring about how I feel. And listen, a lot of times what I do want to name is we'll say, I have talked to my partner about this. Have you really though? And that's not like from the space of anger, but not when we're in an activated moment, really said to my partner, I feel flooded. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I'm hating my life right now and not enjoying motherhood and partnership because this is just awful. And I don't want to live like this anymore. Not in the moment of anger, but like when we're calm and that person still is like, eh, I don't care. Oh, well. First of all, I don't know. <laughs> Why are you with that person? If that is the truth. Um, but then I got to take the next difficult step, which is what am I going to do about that? And that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to do the hard thing. So we put all of our focus on this other person and what they're not doing. And here's the thing, I, like a bigger part of this conversation, and this is so much of the work that Danae and I do, especially when we do workshops and retreats, is really starting to understand Again, I hate to always bring it to the patriarchy, but we have really been taught that, especially as women, you are nothing unless you are partnered. That's right. Your value is in being partnered. It is what we are taught from birth, right? And then the kiss, the the, the king, the whatever, the prince found her and kissed her and they lived happily ever after, right? Like we don't hear about this woman's amazing adventures. It, it has nothing to do with that. She just gets married and that's it. And we live happily ever after, right? We are constantly, I mean, I work with so many women that are in this desperate seek, seeking place for a partner to be loved, to find somebody to be in partnership with, right? I think a lot of the work as women societally that we need to start doing is pushing back against that narrative, is pushing back against why is that? Why do I feel like somehow I am more of value as an individual, as a soul, as a being when I am partnered, even if that partnership is not fulfilling, then not partnered. Right. And I'm not saying there's not perks that comes from being partners, especially when you've got kids, right? It's great Mm -hmm. to share a mortgage. It's a hell of a lot cheaper. It's great when you got a partner to pick up your kids from the afternoon. Like I get it logistically. Sometimes it's easier. Cool. Do you want your soul to slowly wither for the rest of your life so that you can split mortgage? If your answer is yes, then, you know, Godspeed. But if your answer is no, then we need to do some real digging around. Why do I feel like this is my best option? This is my best kind of foot forward, right? And again, this is why I kind of laughed in the beginning when I said, it's an easy answer. It's not easy to execute, but it's an easy answer. I do believe that so many and not all, to Danae's point, there really is opportunity to to shift and to grow and to change these dynamics that we're in. But I think so often societally, we just do not believe that we have any value unless we are partnered. And so we hold on to attachment at all costs. And I think we got to start changing that narrative. Not, I think, I know, I know. Yeah. These become really um, uncomfortable 
truths conversations to speak to. And, you know, I, I led a retreat a few months ago and it was so fascinating. It was all women and it was the juxtaposition of women who were a little bit older than me, women in their fifties and women who were younger than me in their early twenties. And it was fascinating to see this younger generation of women speaking to like, they all know about patriarchy in a way that I was like, oh my God, if I knew what you girls know when I was 20 years old, fascinating. But the women in their fifties were all talking about how they have realized they gave their lives away. They gave their voices away. They made themselves small because that is what society told them that they needed to do. And now they are in the space of reclaiming themselves and reclaiming their lives. And, you know, the women in their twenties were so inspiring to me saying, I will be in a partnership when it is justified. I will be in a partnership when someone sees all that I am and how sacred um, this life that I have come to lead is. And we are on a similar path and have a similar vision for what we want out of this life, but not because I'm incomplete until I'm partnered. And so much of the fundamental wound of the feminine is needing to be chosen because that is what patriarchy teaches us that as long as you were chosen, that should be enough. And what so many of us found and, you know, experience once we, we go down the aisle with the white dress and all the things we're taught to be like the Holy grail of what you should want for yourself is like, is this all there is? And in a lot of ways, it's a little bit of a raw deal for women. Um, And again, not a comfortable conversation to have, but Quite often women are doing so much more of the emotional labor, the household labor, um, the holding of all the things. And they've done studies on this. Men in relationships live a lot longer. Women in relationships, unless they're healthy relationships, we die sooner. And so we need to care about the truth of how this feels for us. And if this is not fundamentally a relationship that supports my aliveness and supports me becoming all that I am meant to be, then that's that's my work to have a really challenging, honest conversation with myself. But to your point, not an easy thing to do. Not and I want to just say, we are not anti-partnership. Like I love, love, love. And love. I'm partnered. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I live with my partner. We own a home. I mean, I'm, I'm doing all the things like that too. So please hear me when I say we are not anti-partnership, but what I am doing and I'm doing it more now than even when I first met him, I am doing me. I am loving me. I am working on me. And here's the thing. We are either going to evolve together in that or we are not. I cannot control his journey. I cannot force him to evolve. I cannot make him change. It's not my business. I'm not God. I don't get to decide what his journey looks like. I get to look at myself and do this inner work with myself. That's either going to help us grow or it's not. And then Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to make some decisions based on that. That's all we're saying, right? It's like continually bringing the focus back to self instead of pointing the finger outward and then letting the chips fall where they may, I think is just really important for us to continue to come back to. Yeah. I just, one more thing I wanted to add on what Vanessa said, because I do think it's important and we are not anti-partner at all. We, I think partnerships, when they are good, healthy partnerships, do support our life force and support. Um, they become the foundation with which we can sort of spread our wings and do all of the things in our lives. And, you know, something Vanessa's partner, John, talks about a lot is normalizing the expiration of relationships and that sometimes relationships are not meant to be with us throughout the longevity of our lives. And we live in a culture that really sort of 
holds longevity as Mm -hmm. the standard. Like, you know, we've all been at weddings and it's like the person who's been married the longest sits down the last and we clap for the people that have been married for 50 years. And it's like, we have no idea if those were like the 50 most miserable years ever, but hallelujah, they're still married. And I think, you know, holding that it is a failure when relationships end a lot of times keeps us in this space of suffering where it's like, no, like my relationship with my ex-husband, like he's one of the greatest loves of my life, my best friend in the world. And it is in no way, shape or form was that relationship changing form a failure or anything negative. And I think we need to normalize that. So not anti-relationship, anti-relationships that are not healthy and where we are thriving in them. Yeah, that was a really interesting answer to go through because where my mind went to is um, when you have different life events like kids coming in, that can be just this you know, Drew and I were like, okay, men and women, like we both did so much around the house. Like we both pulled our weight, like everything was so good. We were like feminists and then kids come in and then we fall back into some patterns that were demonstrated to us. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and then are we going to grow from that? Or Mm -hmm. is that going to be like where the story ends? And then Mm -hmm. I'm just feeling resentful. Like that's where I think it gets really interesting for people listening that are already partnered because maybe that's what they were experiencing where they're like, no, I signed up for someone that felt like he was going to let me grow. And then, you know, something shifted. So I, I definitely think that that can be part of it. You two are so insightful. This was such an interesting conversation. I want you to let everyone know where they can find more of your work. So we actually have a podcast as well. So the podcast is Cheaper Than Therapy. Um, and you can find us on Instagram, cheaper than therapy pod, um, the pod pod. What is our podcast? podcast. (laughs) Um, mine is my handle on Instagram is Vanessa S Bennett, um, websites, Vanessa Bennett.com. My Instagram is Danae.Logan, um, on all the platforms, I think. Oh, I think I'm misinterdependent on TikTok. I'm trying to be on TikTok a little bit. Oh, TikTok. There we go. I'm the Coda, the Coda Yoda on TikTok. So... (laughs) We'll make sure to link these two so that it's easy for people to find you because I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of women who are going to be searching for your information. So thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you so much, Danae. Um, yeah, this has been one of my favorite interviews on the Herself podcast, I can say that. So. Oh, it's so nice to meet you guys. 